Our scripture lesson today comes from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, uh, verses 17 to 20. Let's share in God's good word together. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our world has an anger problem. Anger that is allowed to marinate and build and boil over is dangerous. Anger creates its own reality, full of logical justifications for unjustifiable acts. Anger creates a whole list of enemies, real and imagined. Anger unaddressed leads to murder. That kind of anger turns good citizens into people who are threats to society. And it always has. Dallas Willard goes as far as to say there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. And I think he's exactly right. Our anger is nothing more than our own wounded ego, our not getting our way or what we want. And this is where Jesus comes in and has the answers to our deepest problems. Jesus says, God is in control, and you don't have to worry any longer about getting your way. Because if you're not getting your way, God has something better for you. Really, let me say that again. If you are not getting your way, God has something better for you. In the greatest teaching ever given by the smartest man who has ever lived, Jesus, we learn that with God in control, nothing is the end of the world. Nothing. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. God is with us, and we can live with God right here, right now. We can bless when others curse. We can help when others hurt. We can bring life even when others bring death. We are Easter people, resurrection people, people living in the kingdom of heaven now and always in Jesus' good name, protection and power. Amen? Amen. And now we have to learn together how to walk it out. So let's get started. Our sermon series, we're in week two of Jesus in his own words. This is the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus has, in chapter 4, been healing and helping all kinds of people by the hundreds or maybe even thousands. And he goes up on a hill to teach, and he brings his disciples with them. Last week, as we got started, we learned that the kingdom of heaven is where what God wants done is done. So, like church is a place uh, that you go, church is also a people that we are. So church isn't just a place that you go. Church is who we are as the people of God. In the same way, the kingdom of heaven is not someplace you go after you die, although that's true too. The kingdom of heaven is also something you can live in right now, right here, because the kingdom of heaven is where what God wants done is done. And you can participate in that right here, right now. Now, that's contrasted with, of course, the kingdoms of the earth, the kingdoms of the world. And my kingdom is what I have say over, where what I want done is done. So we have the kingdom of God, where what God wants done is done, and we have the kingdom of earth, where what we want done is done. And Dr. Amy Jill Levine says it this way. She says, heaven is a different place, 
a better place, a real place, a place where God rules and life is as God wants rather than as humanity has constructed. And we learned last week that Dr. Levine uh, was Pastor Brandon, our associate pastor, Pastor Brandon, our online pastor. Uh, she was his professor for a number of courses, um, and he has shared her work with me, and it's really been uh, life-giving and helpful to me, and so I'm, I'm wanting to share some of that with you in this series, along with uh, The Divine Conspiracy with Dallas Willard and also the work of Eugene Boring out of Texas Christian University. So with all those authors together and, and other folks, um, I hope this will be a blessing to you as we learn how to live together in the kingdom of God. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus in, is introducing us to the contrast between life as we know it and life as God wills it. And life as we know it can be brutal. It can be hard. It can be frustrating. And Jesus says, don't worry. I'm with you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and you can live differently and you can show others how you can live differently. So because of Jesus and Easter, we can live in heaven right now and in the future. So we can be a part of what God's doing here. And then when our bodies wear out and we've done all the good stuff we can do with Jesus here on earth, then we get to be with him perfectly in heaven. So that was last week. This week, I want us to learn how to live in heaven right here, right now. So let's see what Jesus is up to. Jesus is setting up an ideal community with God as loving father of us all. So when Jesus says, um, you know, don't worry about your mom and your dad and what they think, worry about what God thinks. And so he's setting up this contrast, this new community where God is the father of us all. And so anybody who does the will of the Father God becomes our brother and our sister. And that's why in Christian communities, you'll hear people say, hey, Brother Mark, or hey, Sister Chantel, because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. At our baptism, we all begin to belong to one another. With God as our Father, we belong together as brothers and sisters together. So Jesus is setting up a new community, an ideal community with God as our loving Father, and that replaces our family values with God's values. Now, it may be that your family's values match up very well with God's values, and that's great. There's not a lot of movement to be done. But that's not true for everyone, and it may not be true for you. You may have grown up in a family of racists that absolutely hate other people because of the color of their skin. In God's family, that can't happen. That's not a part of God's kingdom. Uh, you may have learned to, to discriminate um, or grown up with bigotry about any sorts of things. Uh, about someone's zip code or about their class. And in God's family, none of that exists. And so uh, we're replacing whatever value system of the world has been placed in us with that of God and his loving, gracious, merciful kingdom. And so the scripture says this, don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. This is Jesus speaking here. Um, in the NRSV, it says to fulfill. I'm going to put it all together, put it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting. See, that's what he's talking about, the kingdom of heaven. It's real and it's lasting than even the stars in the sky or the ground at your feet. Long after stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law and you will only have trivialized yourself. But to take it seriously, show the way for others and you will find honor in the kingdom. Jesus is saying to the disciples in front of him and to the crowds around him, this is the reality in which you are now living. Go, show others how to do it. And then he says this, unless you do far better, far better 
than the Pharisees. Now, I want to remind you, Pharisees were a big deal. They were the people who said what was what on God's behalf. And so for, for Jesus to say, you got to do better than the Pharisees, a lot of people would say, well, that's impossible. Like, how could you possibly do better than the Pharisees? Well, we know, right, as hearers of this thousands of years later, that Jesus is talking about our hearts and the Pharisees' hearts. Because some of the Pharisees had really hard hearts. They knew the law. They knew what they were supposed to do, but they didn't live it. And so Jesus says, no, it's not about what you say. It's about really what you do and what's in your heart as you do it. So he says, unless you do far better than those religious so-and-sos and the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. You see, Dr. Levine puts it like this. She says, Jesus, like other ancient rabbis, right? Because this is Jesus as a Jewish person teaching other Jewish people, all right? As their teacher, their rabbi, he's providing guidelines for living into the kingdom of God, for revealing how God wants us to live by building a fence around the Torah, right? So, so that's the metaphor. He's going to build a fence around the things that you want to protect, that you think things that are important. And as a fence around a house protects what is inside, so the fence around the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, protects the commandments by creating the circumstances that make violation more difficult. So in the Ten Commandments, we have these laws that we're supposed to follow. But in reality, people were breaking these laws because they didn't know how to keep from getting to that point where they were going to break them. What Jesus does is he builds a boundary or a fence so that you don't even get close to breaking the commandments. And he's going to show you how to do it. And he does it with five real life problems, problems that you and I have today that make the headlines every night on the, on the nightly news or in the newspaper. These are five real problems that our world still faces today. And so the first fence he builds is around murder. And certainly if you follow the news at all, you know this is still a huge problem in our country and around the world. So Jesus says this. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, that they knew that. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry, okay, so you have murder, and then he extends this out to anger. Because if you're not angry, you're less likely to murder. So I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, so now you go from angry, now you take the next step to insulting someone, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, what? First, be reconciled. And you see, this reconciliation pushes back anger. It pushes back murder because if we're made right with one another then murder is further and further away so be reconciled jesus says to your brother or your sister and then come and offer your gift and again this brother and sister isn't necessarily your blood brother or sister it is the people in your community it works like this if you reconcile quickly hardship or murder becomes less likely it's kind of like duh right um, if you don't want to murder don't get angry and so if you can keep from being angry, murder is less likely. Jesus goes on. He says, come to terms quickly, right? Don't, don't let the sun go down on your anger, Paul writes in Ephesians. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison. See, these things are not only good or right for the whole, it's also good and right for you, the person that's going through it. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny, Jesus says. So Jesus' extension to include angry words builds a fence around the Torah. 
because everybody knew this from the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. What they didn't know is how not to get into the trap of falling into that place where that might actually be a real temptation for them. So Dr. Levine says it really clearly. She says, if one's not angry, one is less likely to commit murder. Pretty simple. But, and that's, how, and that's what Jesus is doing. But so many of us over the years have completely missed that teaching. So he's taking a core teaching and then he's showing you in real ways how not to violate it. And, and he's, it's just good for your life and good for those around you. The second was to build a fence around adultery. And so one of the things you need to know is no one accidentally finds themselves in bed uh, with another person that they're not married to accidentally, right? It doesn't just happen. Uh, I know people say that, but that's never the case. So Jesus actually shows you how for that not to just happen. Jesus says this, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust, oh, yep, just like anger and murder, this is where it starts. If you are to look at a woman for the purpose of lusting after her, you're in trouble. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're uh, someplace and a good looking woman goes by and you go, wow, she's good looking, that's not a problem. What's problem is if you get up and you follow her somewhere to continue looking at her in lust. That's the problem. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, there are attractive people, and, and that's okay, uh, but it is the, the intention of your heart and the desire to look at a, a woman or a man, um, you know, lustfully. That, that's that's going to lead to problems later because it starts in your mind. So he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. You're well on your way. Uh, because that's what's going on in your heart, because God looks at your heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus does not want you to poke out your eyes and cut off your hands. What he's saying is you, you need to understand the importance of what I'm telling you and how, you know, you have to get this in your mind. And if you think about your eyes falling out and your arms coming off, you're less likely uh, to go down the adultery road because it is dangerous. There are people who lose their lives every day in our world because of adultery. And, and you don't have to be one of them. You don't have to lose your life that way. So Jesus' fence or extension cuts off lust before it grows into adultery. Um, to, to make this a little... Uh, lighter. Uh, one of the great theologians of our day, uh, her name is Dua Lipa. Maybe you've, you've heard this. Um, there's a song that she sings about um, how she's talking to herself th she's, these days. She says, this is rule number one, don't pick up the phone. You know he's only calling because he's drunk and alone. Two, don't let him in. You have to kick him out again. Um, and then she says, I've got new rules and I got to tell them to myself. Jesus has new rules, and he's saying, tell these to yourself. Tell them to your children. Tell them to your community, because these new rules will save your life. And if you've ever counseled uh, a college student or a young person um, that's in you know, marriage age, and they're going through a bad breakup, or they're with a bad boyfriend or bad girlfriend, and they, you, know, you know they're like, oh, no, no, we're just going to get coffee. And your friends say, don't do that. You know that's not going to end well. You know, you've broken up with this guy four times. You've broken up with this girl five times. Like, don't do that. You know it's not going to just be coffee. That's what Dua Lipa is saying. That's what Jesus is saying, right? You have to back it up to those things that you know lead to the problems in your life. In the same way um, that if you had an alcoholic friend say they were just going to go, you know, be a bartender or they're going to hang out at the liquor store, you say, no, that's not a good idea for you. 
That's, that's not going to come out well for you. So, so hold on. We've got to back that up. We've got to build the fence out wider. And here's the thing. Before, before we think, well, you know, Dua Lipa, that's just, you know, you're just being silly. And, you know, there was the sexuality talk is, is very important. You know, in Jesus' day, everybody, you know, had stronger morals. No, no, no. N- not in a long shot. And Dr. Levine puts it this way. We should know this. In Jesus' day, a Jewish man could have sexual relations basically with anyone he wanted to that wasn't married. Uh, a Jewish man could have sexual relations with a divorcee. Uh, they could have sex with a prostitute. They could have sex with an otherwise unmarried or unengaged woman. The only women that men couldn't sleep with were women who belonged to other men because it was considered like stealing because it was another man's property. It was a very different day and time than it is today. So, so let's not pretend that, that this biblical sexuality is something that it wasn't. Um, it, it was far um, from where we are today uh, in, our, in our country or what most Christian people in churches would think of as sort of sexual morals of today. So he goes from adultery, Jesus does, from telling you how to stay out of that uh, to building a fence around divorce because divorce was also a problem. And you might imagine that if you were a guy um, and you could sleep with anyone other than someone else's married woman, um, then why would you have a divorce? You could have as many wives as you could afford. I'm like, what would, what would drive divorce? Uh, and really, it was just an inequity of power um, and that men, largely, basically men were not doing right by their responsibilities. And so Jesus goes on in the sermon. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, what do you need to do? Let him give her a certificate of divorce. It was very, very difficult in Jesus' day for women who were basically cast out on the street if they didn't have a man uh, to give them legal standing. So Jesus says, I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, because men were, you know, kind of tossing their wives aside for, you know, just because they wanted a new model, say it that way. And it was terrible. So he says, no, 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 you can't do that. Um, if, if for any other reason other than sexual immorality, now you're going to cause her to commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's trying to stop divorce. He's trying to make it harder for people to be divorced because it was so painful and devastating in that culture at that time. Uh, it's, it's still devastating in this day, as, as many of us uh, know. Uh, we have friends and family, and some of us ourselves um, have been divorced. I'm, fortunately, Chantel and I have been together for 30 years, and it's largely because of her grace uh, in my life. So the law, the law was that a divorced woman after remarriage could not return to her first husband, okay? And, and, and think about this. This was most likely for her protection. And so the law was that d- people got divorced all the time. It was not uncommon, and Jesus was talking about it as if, look, when this happens, this is the way this needs to go down. So let's not pretend that divorce wasn't rampant in Jesus' day. It was, and he was trying to help correct that for the betterment of their society and their people. And so what was not allowed was for a woman to be divorced, to remarry, and then to go back to her first husband, because normally that would have been very, very bad for the woman. So Jesus' words would make divorce less attractive to the men in power, because it didn't allow them to marry divorced women, and it just made it harder on all of them. So it's kind of confusing and, and a little vague, even among some of the best scholars. And so I want us to move over to 1 Corinthians in the early church and look at Paul's teaching because Paul knew what Jesus taught about this. And so this is what he tells the early church. 
Paul says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. And we know that not all marriages are made in heaven. And, and marriages are not meant to be a war zone. It is to peace that God has called you. And so whether we're reading Paul or whether we're reading Jesus, what we know is that God is love and God calls us to love. God calls us to forgive and God calls us to be people of peace, not of chaos or of war. And so uh, I, I know we've got lots of wonderful divorced folks in our church. And if you're divorced, I'm happy to visit with you about that and remind you that you are loved. And what God wants for you and those in your family system is that you would live in peace and harmony with one another and that our homes would be a haven of blessing and peace, not only for our families, but for the world. And that's what's important to God. The fourth thing that Jesus builds a fence around is against violence. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, now, as far as I know, there's been no other rabbi before Jesus that ever put the Torah versus his teaching. Only Jesus can do this because only Jesus is God. And so Jesus says, I know you've heard this, but, but listen up. This is what I'm saying to you. Do not resist an evildoer. It's no longer an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth because that's not always fair. And uh, Dr. Levine would want you to know that almost always there wasn't a bunch of people cutting each other's arms or hands or feet off. It was almost always monetary. It was only when a settlement couldn't be reached um, that they would literally go for an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth or something like that. And so Jesus then expands that uh, from this uh, really equal up damage to damage um, to what's really at stake. And that is our wounded egos, our humiliation. And he gives us three examples. And so how, how are you and I to respond when we're humiliated, when, when things don't go our way and we're put down? Jesus gives us these three. First of all, he says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, there, it's hard to see in this, but when I was a little kid, uh, I used to watch TV shows where, where somebody would take off a glove and they would smack them like that. Um, it was an affront or an offense. And the thing is, it's a backhanded slap because you have to slap with the back of your hand if you're going to hit the right cheek. You can kind of think that through if you visualize it. And so a forward hand would be on the left cheek if you're right-handed, which uh, was the dominant hand of the folks at the time. So if anyone strikes you on your right cheek, it is uh, to disgrace you. And what does Jesus say? He says, well, you turn the other cheek also. You're not to escalate uh, what's going on. Um, but you're also not to cower. Um, and act like it didn't happen, uh, particularly if it was an injustice. Um, you're to stand your ground, and you're to be there in love, and let them know that you've got a power living in you, um, but they don't yet understand, and his name is Jesus, and it changes the world. So if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. That's your inner and outer garment. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, which was common in that day, a Roman soldier uh, who was basically the occupying force, the law was that if they wanted you to carry their pack for a mile because they were tired, um, then you had to. And, and the Jews hated that. I mean, it totally would disrupt your day. You can imagine you're working in your field and a Roman soldier comes by and says, hey, you got to carry my pack for a mile. And you had to. Um, and if you didn't, who knew what would happen to you? And Jesus says, no, no. Go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. 
So I want you to see in all three examples, this is what happens. Do not escalate, right? You, you don't want to escalate uh, into the fight, and you certainly don't want to escalate with a Roman soldier because it gets you killed. Secondly, you, you don't act like it's okay. You don't cower or just let it go by. There are real injustices in the world, uh, and we need to be able to stand up and say, yeah, um, I'll carry your pack a mile, and uh, by the way, I'm going to carry it another mile because of who I am, because of my character, because of my strength, and, and I'm going to show you something you've never seen before. So we stand our ground, and we bless in love. And you never know what God's going to do with that. When we don't escalate and we don't cower and we actually stand our ground and we bless people in love. Can you imagine if you were a Roman soldier and you were thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from your home and your children and your wife and all the comforts of home and someone actually blessed you? It would make you curious what was different about them. How could they do that? How could they show that kind of um, strength and stamina and the ability to bless others um, in such a difficult situation? I think that's why the centurion at the cross actually says of Jesus, surely this was the Son of God. And finally, um, the fifth fence that Jesus talks about is building this fence against limiting love. Jesus says it like this. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may, not be, children, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. You notice that God's character is good. He loves all his kids. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, this is not new, actually, to his hearers. But here's the thing. We don't always do what we say or know to be right. These things about loving your neighbor as yourself, loving other people, even loving your enemies or people not like yourself, they knew this. This was in the Torah. In Leviticus 19, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against any of your people, but you shall, say it with me, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't make that up. That's the scripture all the way back in Leviticus. I am the Lord. And so God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 34, it says, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. Say that with me. You shall love the alien as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see, the Jewish people used to be aliens in the land of Egypt. And God says, you know what that's like. You know how terrible that is. You know that you need compassion. And so now that you're no longer an alien, you need to show compassion to them. And of course, we Christians who are grafted into the promises of the children of God, um, of the Jewish people, then we are to do the same. This is our law as well. And so the thing is, we are to love our enemies. We are to love the aliens. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. But to love our enemies as ourselves requires that we do really love ourselves. And that's where a lot of this starts, is that people don't really love themselves. They're not really sure if God loves them. And that's why Jesus came, that we would know, that you would know today that God loves you and you can love yourself truly because God lives in you. This week as I was studying, I came across a quote from Maya Angelou that I, I think is just spot on. She says, I don't trust people who don't love themselves and tell me I love you. There's an African saying, which is, be careful when a naked person offers you a shirt. See, friends, we can't give people what we don't have. And if you don't love yourself, you can't love anybody else. And if you're with other people that say they love you and they don't really love themselves, um, just get ready for a kick in the head uh, because it's going to come around 
in weird ways and come out sideways at you. And so here's the thing. We can only love our neighbor as ourselves if we love ourselves. And Jesus says, not only are we to love ourselves, but to love our neighbor, but to love our enemy as well. Because our enemies are in God's image, no matter how deformed that image has become. And we can do it because Jesus lives in us. And he says this, our master says this, he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That's non-Jewish people, people not of the faith. Be perfect, therefore, Jesus says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Another way of saying this would be, let the mind and character of God come live in you and you act as if God acts. If God can send rain on the just and the unjust, you can send love to the just and the unjust. If Jesus can forgive the world and Jesus comes to live in you, you can forgive the world. You can trust God to redeem your pain. You can trust God to forgive your sins. And as your sins are forgiven, you can forgive the other people who have sinned against you, which is what we pray each and every week in the Lord's Prayer. So how do we get started with this? Because this is a lot of big stuff, the big stuff of the world. Well, our action step is this. Ask Jesus to show you how to pray for those who persecute you. I don't know who that is for you in your life, but all of us have people in our lives that work against us. And I don't mean a slight offense, but those, those folks that really are um, opposed to you and your life and what you believe and what you're about. Um, how do you pray to God? How would God have you bless them, to serve them, to care for them, as God has cared for you? Because God is love. And when God lives in us, in the person of Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we then have the power to love others, and that love changes the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Keep us vigilant, O God, against anything that seeks to destroy or diminish the fullness of life together in community. Keep us close to you and to our neighbors, and never so far from strangers and even enemies that we fail to extend love to them. Amen. And now with the confidence of the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord and Savior Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.